Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. My friend Joey posted this little graphic on Twitter and called it Teaching Rats Religion. In the 1950s, university professor Rich Richter, uh, Kurt Richter conducted a gruesome experiment with rats to test how long they could tread water. Richter first took a dozen rats, put them in jars half filled with water, and watched them drown. The glass jar was very large, and therefore the rats couldn't climb out of the sides or jump out of it. On average, they'd give up and sink after 15 minutes. Then Richter re-ran the experiment, but with a twist. Right before they gave up due to exhaustion, the researchers would pluck them out, dry them off, give them a rest for a few minutes, then put them back for a second round of treading water. In the second try, after they had just swum, until um, after after they had just swum until failure only a few minutes earlier, they lasted an average of 60 hours. That's from 15 minutes to 60 hours. Richter's results showed that removing or saving the rats just before drowning allowed those rats to swim approximately 240 times longer than the next time they were put into the bucket. One rat even lasted an astonishing 81 hours. Poor little fella. The conclusion drawn was that since the rats believed that they would eventually be rescued, they could push their bodies way past what they had previously thought impossible. Now, rodents have a small but likely a practical grasp on the realities of the world. Now, some people look at this and say, see, religion, and the hope that they have, um, and the hope they have, See religion and hope they have their place. Sometimes I have trouble reading my own writing. Religion makes people happier, more resilient, more generous. And as it scales, better neighbors and human beings making a better society. But did God just give Habakkuk the inspiration to swim better? Is that what God was doing when he said, yeah, I'll make everything right. There's a promise there. Habakkuk didn't see with his own eyes in his lifetime the fulfillment of the promises given him. Is the story of Esther and Mordecai simply a story of the triumph of the moral over the immoral? If Messiahship is victory over our moral inferiors, what hope do our moral inferiors have? What hope do we have? What hope do we have from our moral superiors? Are they just going to kick down? And what's really amazing is what I pointed out last week, that when you look at the servants of the Lord and all the people who were named this in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar, the person promised to Habakkuk, who came down and enslaved Judah and destroyed the temple and took a bunch of the brightest and the best up into exile, is called a servant of the Lord. Now, Christians talk about God's timing, and it always has something of an edge. God's timing is perfect, and it's always compared against the timing we would prefer. And the same goes with the kinds of people God chooses to use. Now, we imagine God showing up looks a certain way, and we sort of have these pictures and dreams and narratives in our head, and boy, sure hope it happens this way, and it almost never does. The future seems to roll out um, very different from how we imagine. Matthew 1, 18 begins talking about the birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and married, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, this little quote that's in the middle, maybe I'll highlight it. This little quote is taken from the book of Isaiah and a rather famous story. Here's the story behind it. When King Ahaz, son of Jothan, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Now Aram is Syria. Um, you can see at the northern part of the map there in Damascus. And, and Ephraim is the kingdom of Israel, the larger kingdom to the north of ten tribes, and you've got little Judah to the south. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. When the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jeshbah, uh, Jeshab, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool. On the road to the launderer's field, say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stumps of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabel king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. With 65 years, within 65 years, Ephraim too will be, uh, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this might be seen as admirable because, well, doesn't, you know, don't we learn that? And when Israel is in the desert, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Doesn't Jesus say that? But on, on King Ahaz's lips, it seems like false sanctimony. Um, he doesn't trust in God, which we'll see in a minute. He, in fact, has other plans and does not want to deal with Israel's God. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right and uh, reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, this is not just simply facile word association between um, the story in Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew. We're intended to compare King Ahaz with Joseph. Let's look at Ahaz. The two kings to the north are threatening him in order to get him to side with them against Assyria. Isaiah invites him to trust in Judah's God and bolster that with a sign. He gives a sanctimonious refusal because he knows he's going to pay Assyria and become Assyria's vassal. 2 Kings 16, Ahaz sent messengers to say, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Babylon, I am your servant and vassal. Doesn't care to be the Lord's servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the gold, the silver and the gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasury of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to, king Asa, to, to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it and reported and deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put resin to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. You can understand whose vassal he wishes to be, and therefore puts all of Judah under the gods of Assyria. He opened up, he offered up burnt offerings and grain offerings, poured out his drink offerings, and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. As for the bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought it from the front of the temple and between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. That tells you something about Ahaz. Now, do you remember Joseph? Faithful to the law. He was kind, did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. He was given an oracle in a dream, and he didn't refuse it, but he pursued it. And was, and was told of, of, this, of this prophesied son, he will save his people from their sins. Now, what does that mean? Is he merely going to save them from the consequences of their sins? Or is he going to rescue them from the power of sin? I didn't stop. Better check the recording.
Well, this is why we call it Rough Draft to Sunday, so you actually got to see me update the sermon as I go, which is, in fact, something I do quite often with these. We're a lot more like King Ahaz than we'd care to admit. We grab on to the solution at hand to get us out of a tight spot. We turn down God's saving invitation in order to do it on our own in a way that makes sense to us, and we wind up in debt to the powers of this world worshiping at their altars. Joseph has to take a hit here. He's got to believe the angelic pronouncement. The rumors aren't going to die down. The baby won't come out with a halo. The reputational hit may follow him to the grave, and he'll be seen as a dupe. But he takes the hit and plays his part. He's upright, kind, and faithful, and he'll do it for the sake of his betrothed and his son, and is God. Now I told the rat story to make a point. Hope has power. Hope can make a rat swim a lot longer than it would anyway. In that sense, Joey's sort of right. You can give a rat religion, but you've been offered way more than just the hope that these poor little rats had. What do you need to keep believing in to keep treading the water in your life? You have a hope and a promise that goes far beyond what these poor animals can hope for. And that hope is offered to you.